The word of God from 1 Samuel. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint me, and you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Altogether, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you please remain standing for a moment longer? Thank you, Penny. Um, Let's pray. Lord, we need your spirit to help us understand these ancient words. Shape us. Remind our hearts that we've been grafted into your story, the story that you have been writing since the beginning of time. And may we understand that these stories are our stories, that they belong to us. And so help us. We need you. Teach us to love you more. Teach us to see you as beautiful, believable. Compel our hearts. We pray this to the glory of Jesus, your Son, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. My name's Ronnie, and if I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, a little context. So my father's family immigrated from Mexico and settled in Houston, and uh, my dad was a cop growing up, so he did security at the Astrodome, and then my brother was a bat boy for the Astros, so it's been a good week for me. If I seem uncomfortably happy, it's because my Astros won. 
So it feels good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I know. I like cheaters. It's fine. I've, de- I've dealt with it. Uh, my friend turned me on to an old French saying. Um, it goes like this. It's the time between dog and wolf. The time between dog and wolf. What's this about? What's that mean? It's based on an old fable you, that used to, it was used to scare young children into coming home before the sun goes down. See, the time be- between dog and wolf is the time before the sun goes down. The, the time between dog and wolf is the time before the sun goes down because after it's dark, you can't tell the difference between a dog and a wolf as it's coming to you out of the bushes, right? And neither can you tell the difference between a friend and a foe, and you can't tell the difference between a good thing and a bad thing. It's, it's the time between dog and wolf. And why can't you? Oh, because when the sun goes down, your eyesight is no longer as effective. And for most of history, before electricity, Seeing clearly was a matter of life and death. In the world of survival, you need to know if you can trust your eyes. And while that is true physically, it's even more true spiritually. Uh, Perhaps you've heard the saying, seeing is believing. Today we're going to learn that believing is seeing, that trusting is seeing. So if you're visiting this morning, you've caught us in the middle of a sermon series on 1st and 2nd Samuel, and we've subtitled this sermon series, Searching for a King or Looking for a King. We've said that 1st uh, and 2nd Samuel, it really tells the story, not of Samuel, it tells the story of David. But today, in chapter 16, is the first passage that actually deals with David and barely. David shows up at the very, very end, and that might be the most important detail about him in our text. This morning, as we study chapter 16, we're going to see this really important motif on how to see. So there's kind of like these two readings or these two lenses for this passage, and it's like what man sees and how God sees those same things. And this passage is, um, it's teaching us, it's training us, uh, the reader, us to see what God sees. And so we're going to study this passage in two ways for you note takers. Uh, The first is we're going to see that God sees a rescue from so-called saviors. God sees a rescue from so-called saviors. And then second point, God sees the heart. So God sees rescue from so-called saviors, and God sees the heart. Let's start with our first point. God sees a rescue from a so-called savior. Years ago, did a secret Santa thing. Everyone in my office drew a name, and then we, you know, got a $10 gift, right, for that person. So I drew uh, Jules Martinez. He, at the time, was my associate pastor. Uh, You know, in that season for Jules, you know, middle-aged guys, um, his back was locking up a lot on him. You know, done that a couple times. And so I had the clever idea of getting one of those, like, 
back massager things, you know, like $8 at, at Walgreens, right? So I thought, hey, I, I, uh, I have a really helpful gift. It's going gonna, it's gonna to fix them right up. So he opened the gift, you know, we all opened the gift with each other in the office, and he's looking at it, and he didn't quite know what he's looking at. It's like a ball with these spokes with other balls. Y'all you know what I'm talking about? It's so weird. So, you know, I took it, and I shoved it in his back, you know, as like a free demonstration. And when I did it, he literally yelled out in pain, like, ah! And with that scream, my savior complex was shattered. Uh, my friend Jules did not need me to, to save him. He needed to be saved from me. The moral of the story is sometimes we need to be saved from our so-called saviors. And that is what God is up to here in our passage. So our passage opens up with God asking right away in verse 1, how long will you grieve over Saul? Now, to understand this grief, I have to just do a real quick nickel tour uh, uh, review. If you'll remember, 1 Samuel opens with Samuel's mom, Hannah, who was barren. Uh, she asked for a son, she got him, and Samuel is this son of promise. He is a great judge who will crown Israel's kings. Uh, Samuel's reign as judge, as the last judge of Israel, was so critical. He, he led Israel out of a very chaotic and violent period and back into obedience and worship. But he had a few sons, and his sons were scoundrels, uh, and there was no good succession plan. So the elders of Israel, knowing at the time they're really just 12 loosely affiliated tribes— they had a big idea, and they asked for a king, just like all the other nations. And we learned about that last week. See, the elders figured that if they had, if they had one, a king, their national fortunes would be secured. So Samuel reluctantly gave them what they asked for, gave them a king. And Saul was Israel's first king, and he was tall and handsome, and he could fight. It started well, but as the saying goes, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And Saul's ego was fragile. There's a bug flying around me. Um, Saul's ego is fragile, and his reign turns awful and oppressive. And uh, Samuel knows that he has to tell Saul that his days are numbered. After decades of faithful service to Israel, his life's work is falling apart right before his eyes. This is like a person who, who built their business from the ground up, and when it comes time to hand it over, they do, and it all just collapses. Samuel is grieving because he sees failure, you see. So God tells him to go to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, and he says, this is the end of verse 1, I have provided for myself a king um, uh, among his sons. And so in Hebrew, literally all the commentaries will tell you that God is saying, I have seen for myself a king. That word provided is actually seen. I've seen for myself a king. Now Saul essentially says in verse 2, and this is a very technical translation of the Hebrew, 
He says, God, let's pump the brakes on that. Saul is a maniac king and will kill me. Like if I go around anointing a different king when there already is one, well, you know how this ends. So God gives him a cover story under the guise of worship. And it's a peace offering. It's a meal. And this is actually a particularly sad commentary on Saul. God knows that if Saul thinks that Samuel is on the move for some religious thing, he won't care. And the plan works. And Samuel gets to Bethlehem. And when he arrives, the elders see risk. Right? Samuel saw failure. The, el- the, the elders see risk. Samuel knocks on the door. They tremble. Verse 4, do you come peaceably? So usually when a spokesperson for God comes around, it's a little bit scary, you know? You know, it's like I was, uh, Mike and I were just flying back from Texas on Southwest, and the flight attendant picks up the PA system and says, is there a Mary, Bo- Mary Boyd on this plane? And now listen, we're all, we're all in the plane, and we're about to take off, and we're buckled in. And so like when your name is called at that moment, it's a little bit uncomfortable, Repeat announcement. Is there a Mary Boyd on the plane? Clarify. You're not in trouble. (laughs) Mary raises her hand because she was wondering, like, do you ask peaceably? Right? You follow? So these elders are like that. They're the ones who asked for Saul, the, the rotten king in the first place. And now they're wondering, are they in trouble? I mean, they regret their decision, But are they in trouble? See, when the elders see Samuel, they see risk. But Samuel invites everyone to a party. In verse 5, when he says there, uh, come with me to a sacrifice, when you see that, think feast. Come with me to a feast. This will be a religiously sanctioned feast and party. Now, at this point, it's not too hard to reflect on our own lives right? There are things in our lives that we were so sure would deliver us, that they would change us for the better, that would help us to have a better life, and they did not. They were failed saviors, and now we need saving from these failed saviors, right? If we could just look a certain way with a certain body, If we could just get a significant other or someone to ask us to marry them. If we could just get good grades or accepted into a university or into a prestigious residency or a program. If we could just be the most accomplished parents. Then maybe, then just maybe that nagging and tyrannical sense that I don't measure up will start to fade away. And it's all good until it isn't. Until those things are taken away or we can't make them happen. And you know what we need? We need to be saved from those fake saviors. But it's scary. It's scary. Like when we look at our lives, we see failure. We see risk. What we don't see is what God sees. Can you see this in the passage? 
Samuel saw failure. The elders saw risk. But God saw an opportunity. He saw a king, the true king. And there's this invitation, right? This, this passage is teaching us. It's, there's this invitation to see as God sees. See, whatever failure or whatever disappointment you might be experiencing, it's actually an opportunity to rid yourself of a fake savior and to be blessed by the real one, <laughs> by the true king, the king of God's choosing. You see that? Well, let's keep going because we're going to be revisiting this. There's more in this passage. So we've learned how God sees a rescue from our so-called saviors, but he sees something else. He sees the heart. And this is our second point. So the story continues. Samuel shows up, consecrates himself. He confesses. He prepares, slaughters an animal, lights a fire. But before they eat this peace offering and enjoy the feast, he says... Uh, I need to see your sons. Now, the eight, these eight boys of Jesse are the great-grandsons of Ruth and Boaz. In case you need a little Bible history. Isn't that a sweet thought? These eight boys are Ruth and Boaz's great-grandsons. Now, you and I know why Samuel is there, but they don't. See, Jesse doesn't know if this is good news or if this is bad news. And what ensues looks to us like a beauty contest, like people just gawking at physical attributes, right? So Jesse's oldest and his firstborn appears, and Samuel's pretty sure he, like, he knows where this thing is going, right? Where it's headed. Verse 6, Samuel thinks, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Now, why would he think this? It's because he's looking at all the wrong things. God totally knows that he is looking for the wrong things. And so he says, verse 7, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. So just for a little bit of context, in that age, in that time, like, this is like the Bronze Era, okay? Kings were warriors. Being tall and strong were an, incredibly, were an incredible tactical advantage in war. Uh, think about it like a more contemporary example, like Braveheart, right? Like the William Wallace of history, historians tell us that he was actually between 6'5 and 6'7. He was thought of as a great leader, but not because of his Mel Gibson-esque type speeches, right? But because he was a physical specimen. And this was significant in a time when the average height was 5'6". So he's a foot taller than everyone else. They say that William Wallace wielded a sword that was longer than most men were tall. Big, tall, strong kings were important, especially if they're going to go against champions like Goliath, who we're going to learn about next week. And so this is why Samuel is so impressed. When he looks at Eliab, or Eliab, he is looking at King Saul all over again. And to this, God says, don't look at his appearance. And he says, because I have rejected him. Rejected him. 
That seems like strong language to say to a young kid who doesn't even know why he's standing in front of Samuel, right? That rejection, it's not about Eliab. It's about Saul. We go back so fast. We run easy to bad things. We run so easy to the things that will enslave us because it feels more reliable than God. (laughs) So to this, he says, don't look at the appearance. Saul saw power, good looks, strength, promise, the things that he knows. Samuel's eyes could not see what God saw. So God says, verse 7, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. So God is saying, listen to me. Listen to me. In me is all the warrior you will ever need. I don't, I don't need a strong warrior. I have all the power in of myself. I don't need a warrior. What I want is a soft heart. And so what ensues is a parade of sons. Verse 8, son number 2, Abinadab. Next. Verse 9, son number 3, Shama. Nope. Next. And after son number 3, they don't even get names. Now, Samuel gets it. He, he recognizes that he can't see what God sees. And so he does the next best thing. He listens to God's voice. You notice that Samuel's refrain after each son, he says, neither has the Lord chosen this one. So right, he's listening to God's voice. He's listening to God's word. You hear that? He's listening to God's word instead of trusting his own sight. And so this parade of sons repeats until no boys are left. And then Samuel gets a little confused. Uh, Jesse is like, is there another kid? Well, yeah. Verse 11, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. Now in the Hebrew, that word youngest is best translated littlest, the littlest. And that word in Hebrew carries with it disdain. It's hard, we don't, littlest doesn't carry disdain with it in English, but it does in Hebrew. It's like saying, yet there is still the runt of the litter. He wasn't really worth inviting to this parade and party. Now, if we're training our hearts and our ears and our eyes to see the bigger story of God in the world, then you'll say, of course it's the kid who they left at home. Of course it's him. God chooses the foolish things of the world. God chooses the weak things of the world. There's a pattern being developed in God's spiritual economy. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Samuel says, we'll send for him, and no one is eating this veal or even sitting down until number eight gets here. And this is brilliant storytelling. We're we're starting to feel the suspense. But now don't miss, you guys, the real story. 
We like a good underdog story. In our sort of Disney-ized brains, we project actually the wrong motif as if there's like this family of brothers who are all training to be the quarterback, you know, QB1, and we think, man, no one believed in the littlest brother, but he ends up having the best arm. This is not that story. See, no one except Samuel even knows what the parade of sons is about. They don't have anointing a king on the brain here. They thought they were there for a a feast, for a party. It's not that they looked at David and decided that he was not QB1 material, and so so he doesn't try out for the team. It's way, way worse than that. They were gathered for a feast, and they didn't invite David to the party. He wasn't underestimated. He was forgotten. That's how far out of the picture number eight is. Do you know what it feels like to be invisible? You know that, you know that David could see the fire from the sheep field. Bethlehem is a small city. It's really a town. He could smell the veal on the grill. He knows Like, David knows. He knows the pain of seeing an Instagram post of a party that he was not invited to. No one saw David. But in the silence and the suspense of the moment, the messenger comes to him and says, hey, number eight, Samuel is waiting. And when the prophet and the judge and the priest call you, you run. So it's dark now. The fire is casting a long shadow off of Samuel's deep-set eyes. And out of the shadows, David emerges. And he's out of breath for running. And the same name that would be named hundreds of times in the Old Testament and dozens of times in the New Testament, the man whose biography is the longest in all of the ancient corpus, whose name is still inscribed in ancient stones in the foothills of Judea, to this day you can read his name on those stones. This young boy emerges, and he is described as ruddy, beautiful eyes, and handsome. And that sounds like a compliment because my wife says this to me every day. (laughs) It's not a compliment in this text. It means that David has never gone to battle before. He doesn't have scars on his face that adorn him from his battle experience. David's not strategic. But he steps out of the shadows and into God's story. And when Samuel lays eyes on him, God whispers, arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel trusts God's word, not his own eyes, not his own logic. And Samuel pours oil on his head, and the invisible one is finally named. Verse 13, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. The first time you see his name in the whole Bible. 
It is this anticlimactic, passive way that King David is first introduced to history. This man who gets more screen time than anyone else, whose love, lusts, poetry, courage, foolishness, painful betrayals are so captivating. His story begins not by political maneuvering or military conquest, but by the sovereign choice of his Lord, who chose an unseen, forgotten runt to be his king. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. God looks at the heart. Is that good news or is that bad news? And do I believe it? You know, we spend a lot of time on our outward appearance, hours in the gym, stuffing our face with kale and blueberries and chia seeds, work tirelessly in our careers, hours. And none of this is wrong, except that it begs the question, how much time do we spend working on our heart? I mean, what would it look like if your outward appearance depended on how much time you spend on your heart? Would you still look healthy and fit? Or would you look like that dude who only eats chicken fingers, fries, moon pies, and Twinkies and a 64-ounce big gulp of grape drink? Do you invest in your heart where God looks? There's no way that Samuel would have trusted God's word over his eyes if there wasn't an investment in his heart first. He was able to respond to God's word because his heart was trained to listen. And this means everything because God really does not look on the outward appearance, but he looks upon the heart. And in David, he saw a lowly, runtish shepherd, and he chose him. Not because Saul was a wolf and David was a dog. God knew everything glorious and broken that David would become. David is both wolf and dog. But with all of his failures, he's a man after God's own heart. And we must not neglect the careful care of our hearts. Our hearts need to be oriented and ordered regular, regularly toward God, towards Jesus, the real Savior. So that when we listen to his word, when his words are speaking to us, instead of running easy to the things that our eyes trust, we run easy to the things that God loves. Well, let me conclude with one last observation from this text. So my son, who I took on a college trip, crazy, he used to be a baby. <laughs> and it's something when your babies grow up, I could cry just thinking about it. 
So my son, Micah, when he was little, he's not unlike other kids. He had a big old head for his body, right? You know, like his, his head's like half his body weight, right? Uh, that's actually what made walking so hard and so difficult. He would stand himself up and look down at his feet. And he was so impressed by his feet that they could move one in front of the other. And so he would stand, stare at his feet. And then what would he do? Boy, that top heavy body would just fall forward onto his face. But I knew that if I could keep his head up, if I could keep his eyes on me and not his feet, I could get him to walk and move forward and only fall into my own arms. Y'all see what I'm doing here, don't you? This story is not an invitation to stare down at a line of kings. This is not ultimately about David or his son Solomon or any other earthly king. This story is meant to make you to lift your eyes up. See, right at the very beginning of our passage, we're clued into this. God says in verse 1, he says, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. That is not a throwaway detail. This detail tells us that Jesse and his sons are from Bethlehem, which means they are from the tribe of Judah. And this is startling for a Jewish reader because they know that back in Genesis 49 in the Torah, there was this prophecy that the eternal ruler of Israel, that the scepter comes from Judah. Saul, the false king, the one who's on the, on the throne now, he comes from the tribe of Benjamin. David is from Judah. But this story is not about David, whose name means beloved. See, David and his sons would ultimately be cut down by their own failures. But keep looking down and keep looking up. Isaiah 11 tells us this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. See, Jesse's sons fail. The, the tree of Jesse is cut down and it's turned into a stump, but a shoot emerges. And he will also be born in Bethlehem of the tribe of Judah. And he will be forgotten because he is the stone that the builders rejected but he will become the chief cornerstone. And this king will not take, the, take on the name beloved. What he takes is your sin upon himself. And he will die a death that you deserve as your substitute. And why? To make you his beloved. This is the gospel story, you guys. Jesus Christ, the king you are looking for, is the Davidite, and he is your king. May we learn to see what God sees. Amen. Amen.